This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, CIIS professor and psychologist Nicole Zapian discusses her recent research into cases of infidelity and how we can reframe the way we think about infidelity and sexuality in our relationships. This event was recorded on January 9, 2019 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. And that's also where you can find out more about us, including how to sponsor future episodes of the show. Uh, thank you for coming, and thank you to Public Programs for hosting this event. I'm going to read most of my talk tonight, mostly because I have a lot of detail to give you, and I want to make sure that I get all of that detail in, and since it's being recorded for the podcast, but we'll certainly have an opportunity to be a little more relaxed with one another in a moment. Tonight, we're going to talk about infidelity, or affairs, and I'm going to define the term in a second, but before we do that, I have to give you a bunch of information and trigger warnings up front. Essentially, my talk is coming from a particular perspective. I'm a researcher and a psychotherapist and a sex therapist who treats cases of infidelity. And that implies that even though I might have my own personal ideas about the topic, and most of us do, if you think about it for a moment, you probably do as well, that is not what I'm going to focus on tonight. I'm going to focus on a non-judgmental stance. And that's because I want to make sure that I can understand the widest range of possible experiences that people have so that should they come into my clinical practice, I can support them. My work includes looking beneath what people say on the surface about what they do and what they don't do, and trying to figure out their less conscious fantasies and fears. While I may make some generalizations tonight about infidelity, ultimately each case is unique. In general though, I find what's beneath the infidelities is actually the most important part, not the infidelity itself. So before we begin, I want to acknowledge any of you who have been betrayed or have any kind of personal experience with negative, negative impacts of betrayals. It may have left you with strong feelings, and your perspectives may make my non-judgmental stance tonight really off-putting. So I just want to acknowledge that my heart goes out to you. I really do care about your experiences, but I'm going to take this stance for, for your learning. The experiences that people have when they're betrayed are almost universally painful. They're difficult to grieve. They're really difficult to come to terms with, and they leave lasting effects sometimes for generations. To those of you who've been the third party, the other man or woman or person in the relationship, in the triangle, you too generally experience actual or fear of judgment. There's often less security for you. You may be cast as the temptress or the bad boy. You generally are blamed disproportionately for the affair, particularly if you aren't in a relationship yourself at the time of the affair. So, you often end up with your share of grief and relational issues, both during the infidelity and after. My heart goes out to you as well. And to those of you who've betrayed a partner, my work is dedicated to understanding your perspectives and experiences, which are usually somewhat hidden from others, and sometimes even hidden from yourself. My goal is to help you make conscious what's beneath them, so that you, as they unfold, so that you and and your, your partners and the people that are affected can make meaning out of those experiences earlier so that it doesn't just unfold unconsciously. And if you don't fit into any of those three categories, congratulations. I, I, there's very few people who haven't experienced one of those roles, but I digress. Um, most of what I have to, to say today should hopefully expand your ideas. So what is infidelity or an affair? It's been defined historically in relationship to the law, actually, in terms of adultery. It's been largely associated with instances of sexual intercourse outside of monogamous heterosexual relationships and largely focusing on who's going to take care of the offspring and the financial implications thereof. In the 80s and the 70s, there was a lot of access to birth control and changing divorce laws and all kinds of other, other activities. And most of these laws vary state by state. But at the end of the day, Marriage rights and divorce law has impacted our definition of infidelity because courts no longer really care about who's cheating on whom because it doesn't really have that much of an interest in child custody cases anymore. 
except in a couple of our southern states. So we have a new definition. Dr. Shirley Glass wrote a really incredible book in 2003 where she redefined infidelity for all of us in the academic world. She states, quote, infidelity is defined as an act or acts of betrayal of a sexual or emotionally intimate nature as perceived by one or both parties of a couple. It's a pretty interesting definition. I want to focus on two aspects of her definition. The first is perception. Perceptions differ between people and within people over time. That leaves room in her definition for a paranoid person or a controlling person who perceives that there is a betrayal. But the majority of us would not agree that there is a betrayal to be experiencing betrayal by infidelity. It also leaves room for online cheating, viewing porn outside of a relationship, micro cheating, emotional affairs, or a host of other experiences that include sex or not. And that's because it's all tied to perception, not particular behaviors. I've been asked by people typically when I give talks who want to avoid problems in their relationships, like what should we do? Should we talk about upfront and agree what constitutes a betrayal? And I usually say to them, yeah, you can do that. That's maybe a good idea. Lots of people in the poly communities or in open communities do that. But I don't think it's going to really help. And here's why. The issue of time, embodiment, and the unconscious come to bear on instances of infidelity. And from what I can tell, we live our erotic and sexual lives in an embodied way, sometimes unconsciously, and we only realize after the fact, oh no, I'm flirting. Oh no, I feel something. Oh no, I'm having an affair, for example. I'll explain. The full meaning of what is happening real time is not always consciously available to us. And sometimes it's developed through real-time real embodied interactions. Sometimes we're telling ourselves a story about what's happening while it's happening. I'm guessing you can probably imagine an experience like that. And of course, things like flirting or eroticism or sexual are, are widely varied. We could all debate what constitutes those terms. What happens is we discuss hypothetically in advance with our partner, as responsible partners do, what constitutes a betrayal. We outline all the parameters. And then we encounter later a scenario with someone that's really powerful. Let's say our agreement is, OK, flirting's fine, no kissing or touching. That's erotic. OK. Technically, we've not broken whatever agreement there is because there's no touch with this person that we're having this powerful feeling. But now we're experiencing something that we didn't anticipate, and we're moved to think and behave based on the feelings that we have in ways that we didn't expect. And those, those yearnings, those feelings, develop into more feelings. We tell ourselves it's nothing because we haven't broken the agreement. And meanwhile, the powerful feelings take on a life of their own. This example can be extended into open structures, where often the agreements are very detailed and very specific and tend to include dating and making out, but, but not taking it further and drawing the line as to what's further sometimes is problematic. Or having particular kinds of sex, but not other kinds of sex. Oral, but no anal. No, not without protection, etc. What usually occurs in these scenarios that leads to a breach is that the conditions are not terribly practical. People don't usually stop mid-embodied act to consider all of this, to call their partner and to find out, is this a person that, I, that I'm allowed to include in our, in our poly family? Is this a moment, oh, we don't have a condom, now what? People are remarkably poor at making decisions in those situations. They navigate the scenarios differently than anticipated and end up breaking the agreements that they made sometimes without intending to. Then they have to have the cleanup conversation. Some of these conversations happen in my office. It's good fun for all. <laughs> so where the line is and what version of monogamy or commitment you're, you're envisioning may be a really interesting discussion to have, and I highly recommend it. But I don't think it really changes anything, and I don't think it helps you prevent affairs. This is mostly because of decision making and how poor we are at anticipating the future, particularly with embodied acts. So I want to focus a moment on the definition, that the part of the definition that is about embodiment, and that is the sexual or emotional nature. There's a French phenomenologist philosopher named Merleau-Ponty who talks a lot about perception and in particular about embodiment. And he describes sexuality as the body subject's concrete, spatial, and pre-reflective intentionality or directedness toward the lived world. 
He states, quote, insofar as I have hands, feet, a body, I sustain around me intentions, which are not dependent on my decisions and which affect my surroundings in ways that I do not choose. This isn't accomplished through will or intellectualization, but through conversations and gesture. So I'll let that sink in for a second, but I think what he's just defined is unintentional flirting or eroticism. Add to this that some people are not particularly aware of what is occurring in their bodies as it's occurring, or they're not particularly conscious of the movements and gestures that they make and how those gestures are being received by others. The embodied aspect that occurs pre-reflectively can be the basis of the beginnings of an affair. So instead of trying to define ahead of time what would be the line you're not to cross, spend your time slowing down so that you can become aware of your embodied life. The sensations, the gestures, the movements, your tone of voice, and so on. And consider how these impact yourself and others, moment to moment, as you move through time. And link those to conscious decision-making acts. Do you wish to be facilitating eroticism in that particular moment? Do you know how to facilitate eroticism in that particular moment? Do you wish to facilitate eroticism with this particular person in that moment? There will be some aspects of your experience and relationships that remain unconscious to you, including your embodied life. But some of those aspects can influence you if you're aware. So I'll give you an example. This happens to me in my own relationship with anger and aggression. And by aggression, I'm using that in the clinical term. I'm not talking about like intense aggression, but we label anything that is outward-directed negative feelings, hostility, and so on as aggression. I am aware of the times when I'm angry that I usually take a particular stance. I usually cross my arms, and I usually avoid a gaze of whomever I'm angry at. I do this for a couple of reasons, I think. To avoid the confrontation, to, to try to appear civil, to contain my feelings. I have the experience that I take this pose because I am angry, but I could also decide to take a different pose and still be angry. So for example, oftentimes I've noticed that it goes better if I am angry, if I stop crossing my arms and I look at the person I'm having the dialogue with that I'm angry at. Why? It's because this is a more vulnerable stance. This is a, a gesture, an olive branch, of, as it were. I'm saying with my body, I do not wish to fight, even though I'm angry. I'm, I'm giving the ambivalent signals which allows me a little bit more latitude, a little bit more choice. The same is true with eroticism. So back to the problems with defining infidelity. Let's explore an example. A research participant in one of my four studies describes the beginning of an affair. He reports, this is a quote from direct quote unedited. This lady walks in, and this was late in spring or early <coughs> summer, and she walked in lightly dressed and barefoot because she'd been gardening. And she lived around the corner, so I was pretty struck with her immediately. So that's how we actually met. And then <sighs> there were various kinds of socializing things, and I found myself very attracted to her very quickly, and I proceeded to be friendly with her. So we established a sort of relationship, although it wasn't physical. In fact, it wasn't sexual until much later. In fact, um, after my wife and I at the time had split up. I don't think I considered it an affair, and I know she didn't at the time. My wife knew it was an affair. It was certainly a mess. So in this short description, he makes really clear that the physical and sexual breach for him is the line that he didn't cross. He names it an affair because that physical breach didn't happen, at least until he divorced his wife at the time. His wife is calling it an affair. Her perception is that this is an affair earlier than he called it an affair because she's perceiving something. And so according to Glass, it meets the criteria. Clearly her perceptions are different. She feels betrayed already and locates the beginning of the affair earlier. This is just to illustrate the issue of time and perception that happens in so many scenarios. Most of the time when clients come to my office, they spend a good deal of, of time arguing about how and why the affair happened. And usually there's a lot of bitterness and upset about that. I don't generally spend a lot of time trying to figure out how and why it happened, but it certainly is interesting to recognize that people have vastly different perceptions and a lot of stuff is unconscious and, and develops with conscious acts that are taking place. This man is explaining there were socializing things. I made efforts to contact this woman. So he's demonstrating intentionality, but he's not naming it an affair. So he's not intending to have an affair. He's intending to get to know her, but the energy is there and it's unconscious to him. 
So I want to talk for a bit about what we know about infidelity from the academic literature. And this is going to be um, somewhat disappointing, I must say, in part because it's so difficult to study lies, essentially, right? Um, and people's private sexual lives. They're generally not particularly forthcoming. So it's quite funny when you try to study something like this. An estimated 20 to 75% of couples have had or will have an instance of infidelity at some point in their lives. Okay, that's a huge range. It's basically a throwaway statistic. And this is in part because each researcher defines infidelity differently, which is like good fun for all when we're trying to analyze all of our data. And I've basically abandoned the effort of trying to define it. I don't care about making one intersubjective agreement about what it is. It's really about the people who are experiencing it and what they call, call it. So for someone, it might be, it's only infidelity if you've had 47 partners outside of our, our relationship. The 46th is fine, the 47th isn't. And for someone else, it's really about, you know, talking to a person who is attractive. So it's really varied. I also think people lie in surveys about sex, and people lie in particular about their own lies, and some of their own lies are about unconscious material. So it's, it's really funny. The internet plays a huge role in infidelity, allowing easier access to private communications with a third party and more instantaneous feedback loops and fantasy-laden images. People are more likely to say extremely positive or extremely negative things online than they would in person or in voice communications. Take Yelp for an example. Does anyone spend any time giving somebody like a three stars and saying something kind of moderate? Usually not. Most of Yelp is fives and ones. That's true for all. Things that we say in chat and in text and in all the apps that we use to communicate are usually um, not the way we would communicate in person, for better or for worse. So I'm a Gen Xer, I'm just gonna reveal my age right out of the gate, and I can still remember in my childhood the kitchen phone on the wall, mounted on the wall, with a rotary dial and a cord, right? We had one phone, an answering machine, which was an actual machine, um, no caller ID, no call waiting. These might even be apps like most, or features that most people don't understand. But anyway, everyone in my generation understands this. And no voicemail until I was almost in college. All telephone conversations in my household during my childhood were public ones. And they occurred real time and could not be shared, forwarded, or replayed. I suppose the answering machine could. You could replay the same message. Okay, good for you. Not very interesting. Um, Email wasn't being used broadly at that time. Only real sort of science geeks had an email account. It wasn't something that was used for social communication. And if you, you know, if you asked 100 people, probably only one person had an email address until I was already in graduate school. Um, there was, if, if we received actual mail, usually whoever was first to get home would grab the mail and bring it to the kitchen. And that would be the place where everyone congregated. It was an open kitchen facing the, the dining room. And so even mail was kind of public because inevitably someone would open up the mail and then everyone would look over your shoulder. That wasn't even really very private. So to have an affair in that context would have required significantly more planning and significantly more risk. You would have had to consciously engage many more acts in order to even meet someone in a, kind of, in a kind of secret way. Now you can fire off an email and you can meet someone in a matter of seconds and no one will know. And you don't even really have to reflect on that that long. It could have been an impulse and you fire it off. So I'm not going to say that I'm anti-internet. I just want us to be conscious and aware of all the decisions that go on there or don't go on there. Most of the research on the subject is completely outdated. There was a flurry of affair research in the 70s and 80s when there was a flurry of divorces and a lot of sort of swinging and so on. And that was largely derived on the heels of, of birth control. So the birth control pill is widely available. Then everybody decides to leave their marriages and to cheat and to do what they can do. Hooray. And then a lot of research on what are the impacts of, of all of this. That research is completely outdated and really not as relevant. There's a lot of research that's based on clinical cases. And that's interesting, but those are all unique cases and very situated. And there's a flurry of academic research studies in the recent history, the last five years, based on the advent of the internet and what's going on. But what's really interesting is that none of this data is really very useful in terms of helping individuals. Most of them are um, filtered through the theoretical orientation of the clinician or their quantitative studies attempting to sample and represent the population, and then to discuss the correlates of infidelity. The problem is, is that they sample university students usually, and they ask them about their experiences with affairs. 
I think this is quite funny, and about how they would behave in hypothetical infidelity scenarios. So what's fascinating is you ask people how they would behave in hypothetical infidelity scenarios, and everyone says either they wouldn't cheat or they would cheat and they'd be proud of it, but they really don't have a good sense of what would actually unfold, which is far more conflicted and nuanced. And college students, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'd like to think that college students are smart and know what they're doing, but if you're older than college age, you know, undergraduate age, you kind of can reflect back on that time and realize, wow, I really didn't know anything about anything. So there's a little bit of um, judgment about the validity of those findings. So when, when we do sample the population at large, not university students, and we don't ask about hypothetical scenarios, what ends up happening is that we have some findings, but they tend to represent what I call social desirability biases, and what the researchers call it that. Religious people say that they're less likely to cheat in those kinds of studies. Women say that they're more likely to have emotional affairs than sexual affairs. Men say that they're more likely to have more partners. This sounds like a bunch of stereotypes to me. I'm not so sure that the women who are having sexual affairs or the men who don't have very many partners or um, the religious people who are cheating are actually going to tell the truth for a wide variety of reasons. We hide from ourselves that which is objectionable to us and others. This is a basic tenet of psychoanalysis. Even if they're not biased, it's not terribly useful information to help us get to what's beneath the affair and resolve the fundamental dilemmas. I wouldn't get very far in my clinical practice, for example, if a couple comes to me for therapy after the aftermath of affair, and I say to them, you should be more religious, for example. There's also a series of studies that are really interesting right now that are going on about sexual narcissism, sexual beliefs and attitudes, motivation, neuroscience, and compulsive sexual behaviors, as well as sexual identity. And you mix that all together and you get some really rich, interesting, contextualized studies. These are in their early theoretical stages, and there's a lot of debate at this point about what's what in those different constructs. I can't wait to see where those go, and I track them very closely. So why exactly did I set out to study infidelity from the perspective of the one who cheats, given all that's known today and everything that is contemporarily happening? My interest grew because I noted an increase in my clinical practice. People kept coming saying that they were cheating or they wanted to be cheating or they were afraid that someone was cheating or there were couples that were cheating. And I turned to the academic literature and found nothing that was useful. And I wondered to myself, why is there such an increase? Is, is something going on? The cases were difficult to treat. Usually there was a lot of heated emotion in these cases. And sometimes they didn't want to stick it out through therapy. And they usually had really high stakes. Should we stay together? Should we not stay together? Somebody had unprotected sex. I'm going to die. Like all of these kinds of concerns were really existential and deep. Most couples counseling models, which could be applied to cases of infidelity, lack a means to address the sexual issues. And most sex therapists lack the means to address the attachment issues and the trust issues. And almost nobody is really dealing with the, the role of the technology inside of infidelities that kind of start them and maintain them and kind of might be part of a, an internet addiction or a compulsion or, or some kind of behavioral change that we're witnessing. So I was struck by, we need to develop some new theories here. I was also struck by how most of the models that we have focus on, a ta on apology. Like this, sort of this big focus on we have to get some authentic apology from the person who cheated and we have to discuss the rules for engagement and then kind of manage those rules for engagement. Some theorists are even suggesting you put the computer and the internet and everything like in public view and you check each other's phones and you monitor. And I'm not a big fan of that. I think it doesn't work. I have a 14-year-old daughter and she's going to be mortified that this is on the podcast. But... In the beginning, when I gave her a smartphone, I said, okay, I'm going to you know, look over your shoulder and help you with text etiquette, and I'm going to kind of track what you're doing. And it quickly got clear to me that she would go around that and find other ways. She figured out how to set up a VPN network. She figured out how to do all these kinds of things so I couldn't track her. And so it really became about, like, I have to trust you, and we have to have conversations about what kinds of dialogues and issues you're experiencing online so that I can help you. And so that was the only card I had to kind of help her. I think the same is true with infidelity. Monitoring behavior usually doesn't work. People go around it and feel humiliated. So before I share the results of my work, I want to provide you um, sort of a trigger warning up front. And that's because um, I think this topic is really, a, really problematic for a lot of people. And I've learned that experientially. This was illustrated to me right after my book was published. 
And around that time, my husband received an anonymously handwritten letter addressed to him at our home with no return address that simply stated, and this is in quotes, is your wife an apology, uh, an affair apologist or a cheater? With a reference to a book that would help him divorce me if he thought I was not to be trusted. The letter was ostensibly designed to cause upset in my home or to provide a basis for paranoid fantasies for my husband or to critique my non-judgmental stance. It was a perfect enactment. I kind of, I kind of secretively was like, wow, that's brilliant. Um, please don't send me more of them, it's fine. Um, some unknown third party would try to insert themselves into my marriage via a direct, intimate, and private communication with my husband. I would be left out, although it would take place right under my nose. Depending on how my husband reacted, it might cause a variety of possible unsavory consequences. Luckily, my husband is totally unflappable. He opened the letter, read it, shrugged, and handed the letter to me. And he said he thought, oh, one of your patients or your critics or something is taking a pot shot at you, whatever. And we never spoke of it again, despite the fact that I tried to talk to him about it. Like, what do you think? This is so intriguing. He's like, ah, whatever. Had our marriage been in a state of difficulty, or had he been more anxious or more prone to paranoid fantasies, perhaps it would have evoked a different response. It might have even had a different effect in my marriage. There are plenty of cases that come into my clinical, clinical realm where one person is really preoccupied with that someone is having an affair, and really there's no substance to it. So we live in a time where kind of policing and watching is a theme for some people. It was also made clear to me in the recruiting phase for my, for my studies. There were four studies that I undertook between 2012 and 2015, delving into people's experiences of deciding to marry, promising monogamy in whatever way they understood that, infidelity in marriages and domestic partnerships, and infidelity in open relationships, swinging relationships, and poly structures. The recruiting phase of the studies of infidelity were markedly different than any other study I've ever conducted. My comparison set is the more than 200 consumer and B2B marketing research user experience and program evaluation studies I've done for Fortune 500 companies and nonprofits in the previous decades. That was another life. Because of this experience, I knew that recruiting participants for this kind of study would be challenging. It would be difficult to find people who would be willing to come forward and who would talk about their, their experiences in truth. There might even be some differences demographically or psychographically or experientially between those who participated and those who didn't. I knew that whoever participated likely wouldn't tell me the full truth or that there would be social desirability biases that would influence what they chose to share with me. So I would be dealing with a data set that might better describe a derivative of what actually occurred. What I didn't expect was how many people did not want to participate in the study and took the time to state as much, but also chose to send me an email, oftentimes a very lengthy one, detailing their experience of affairs. As a side note, usually when people don't want to participate in research, they simply ignore your, your call for participants. At most, they will send you a curt, take me off your list response. These responses from those who did not wish to participate, however, were substantive and detailed and on topic. And they clearly took time and effort to prepare. I couldn't use these studies in my published research, and you won't find me talking about them in great detail, but I'd just like to share this story. They didn't wish to be a subject of a research study. They didn't want their stories published, but they wanted me, the researcher, to know them. It was really fascinating to me. So, what I did was I sort of made an analysis myself. I'm not going to use any of their material, but I'm going to kind of give you some categories of what these large, um, long emails, rants, as it were, for many of them, were about. There were people who wanted me to know about their painful experiences of being betrayed, complete with many details, even though this wasn't the focus of my studies. I was studying those who betrayed others. And those emails were really, really long, usually. I usually recommended, like, you might want to talk to somebody about this. <laughs> there were people who outed somebody else by name and sometimes gave their contact information, who had an affair, and in some cases forwarded me that person's, you know, all kinds of details, their LinkedIn profile, their this and that and the other. Of course, I didn't follow up with these people. I didn't contact them. I deleted those emails because this would be inappropriate and unethical. But it's a little bit like scar Scarlet Letter, right? This is like 1850s. Like, let's go find the person who's, you know, anyway, that was fascinating. And there were people who insinuated that they'd had an affair. And most of those responses were kind of playful and flirty, which was fascinating. So they're, they're teasing me with, yeah, I had an affair, but I'm not going to tell you about it. You know? And that was, that was really interesting. 
Some people also talked about fantasies and, and opportunities that were missed. So it was clear to me that there were two sides to this issue. There's, there's a real conflict here. There's, it's deeply painful. And there's this, this energy around finding the person and, you know, and marshalling a big judgment for people who've been hurt. And that makes complete sense. It is, it is not fair to have someone have their way without your consent with the structure of your relationship. That's, that's difficult. And then there's all these fantasies and all these wishes and all these desires that people are experiencing. So what an interesting set of, set of experiences. I took all of these responses to the Institutional Research Board. It's how we figure out what to do with human subjects research and ethics. And I asked them, could I please, pretty please, analyze these? And they said, only if you get consent. So I sent all of these people um, another request. Like, you've already given me the data. Would you please um, participate? Most of them still said no. Fascinating. So let's begin in earnest. That's all my preamble. In these four studies, I asked participants to explain their experiences. I will focus on the experience of the moment they began the affair. Whether it was a decision or a plan or an impulse or a drive, I wanted to hear their description of the moment they would consider marks the crossing or the transition from monogamy or some particular agreement to cheating. I allowed them to select whatever they thought was an instance of an affair and to identify the moment it began and then to describe it in detail. This is, of course, them thinking back in time, right? So they're recalling something that happened in the past. It's very different when you ask someone who's in it, right, while it's unfolding. They generally are, in order to lie, we have to usually keep something secret from ourselves. When people are further away from the event, they usually have more insight. So this was why I chose people who'd already been through it. I collected many descriptions from a diverse group of people, including married, domestic partnered, and committed couples who were dating. The ages ranged from 27 to 75, and included folks who were part of heterosexual couples, gay couples, queer couples, swingers, poly folks, open relationships, people who got really mad at me by categorizing them and didn't want to be categorized, and a whole host of other titles. Um, these descriptions were about emotional affairs, about sexual affairs, or online affairs. Some of them were a combination of all of these, and some people had subsequently divorced or broken up, and others remained together. Most of them um, still have mixed feelings about the affair. I'll give you a few specific excerpts from the narratives I collected as I discuss the findings. Infidelity, it appears, regardless of the details of the narrative, seems to have a general structure that most cases follow. This is not to suggest that all cases follow this formula. Of course, there's exceptions. But these constituents were strikingly commonplace and seemed to reinforce one another in the development of the affair. I also suggest that these eight constituents represent important points of intervention and opportunities for transformation. So I'm going to read just some actual verbatim text from what I gathered from my book, if that's OK. So this is someone in response to identify the moment and describe it. I'm 54 years old, and I've been married to my wife for 20 years. It's my first marriage. We have a teenage daughter. I had my first affair about five years ago. Up until that point, I'd been entirely monogamous. Before I met my wife, I had been a serial monogamist. It's been a strong and meaningful structure for me. What led to the affair was a long period of sexual frustration. To put it quite simply, I enjoy sex, my wife doesn't. We had a great sexual connection in the beginning. She was open-minded, seductive, and sexy. And after a couple of months, I felt like an abrupt change occurred. The excitement was gone, and I couldn't discern the reason. The frequency of our sexual encounters decreased, and I remember concluding she didn't love me anymore. Sex has been frustrating since those first few months, essentially. Over the years, I've tried many things to address the issue. We talked a lot. I made it clear what I want. I asked her what she wanted. We read books. We worked hard at creating opportunities for eroticism. We viewed porn together. We tried various suggestions. Eventually, I gave up. Every once in a while, she would say, I know you aren't happy. I'm not either but then nothing changed. At some point, I came to the conclusion that I can't seduce my wife. We ended up only having sex when she wanted it, very infrequently, and how she wanted it, very rigidly scripted. When I demonstrated any desire or creativity, she would refuse. Eventually, I didn't try anymore. I found her attractive, and I felt so deeply rejected by her. For many years, I told myself to be patient, and I thought that it would get better. I figured we would re rediscover our original connection, perhaps when the daughter got older, or at some time would pass and she progressed through menopause. I told myself it would be better then. Slowly, my hopes faded. 
I didn't believe anymore that anything would change. It had simply been too long, I felt too badly about myself and deeply deprived, and I didn't see a path toward change as these events came one by one to pass. I felt stuck in a sexless marriage and I felt confined. This was combined with a feeling of life being too short to not have pleasure. I began to feel that I wanted to not waste the 10 years of my life before I'm too old to enjoy anything anymore. The woman I had my first affair with, of a total of two, was somebody I'd known for more than 10 years. She was attractive, but not somebody I would want a serious relationship with. Before we had the affair, she'd always been flirting with me for about two years. First, I felt like she wasn't serious or somehow didn't mean to address me. My self-confidence was really low. But then she continued to make it very clear what she wanted. She wanted sex with me. There was no particular incident I remember that made me cross the line. I just did. At the very beginning, I felt very guilty. I suffered from a terrible conscience. I almost couldn't do it on my first date with her. But then I had a great time. Um, she fulfilled so many wishes and yearnings I had for so many years. She loved to seduce me, to dress up, to play, and to be seduced. She complimented my body and gave me the feeling that I was really attractive, worthy, and sexy. What a treat after so many years of frustration and despair. This affair went on for almost two years with some breaks in between, and it was a wonderful time for me. In addition, she wasn't really looking for a more serious relationship, and neither was I. So in a way, the affair stabilized my marriage and took some pressure off it. I just want to say a few things about that incident. It's a pretty typical case. There are a lot of stories like this. That last point, in a way, the affair stabilized my marriage. Affairs function as a stabilizer of a deeper conflict. And in this case, the deeper conflict, he goes on to describe it, is essentially that he doesn't want to divorce at all. He doesn't want to disrupt the family or that narrative that he has. And he also doesn't know what to do with his desires. He's afraid that his desires are too strong, too animalistic, too male, too whatever, to really fully have a productive conversation with his partner about them. So he says, I've talked about it. And when, as a therapist, when you dig down into couples who say, oh yeah, we talked about it, when you really ask them, well, what did you say? Usually they say it, say one thing once, kind of half step it, kind of that's it. And the other person says, well, I don't know what, mm, let's watch a movie. And that's the end of the conversation. And it's a really important conversation, but it never gets the weight and the importance that it deserves. And further, it isn't had um, over and over again. Things like sex in a longer relationship or even in a shorter relationship warrant a lot of talking and warrant a lot of ex exposure and discussion. So I want to read another one because they're really different in some ways and some of the conflicts are different, if that's okay. This goes back about 10 years or more. It literally started because one of my kids got interested in doing chats online. And as paranoid parents, we had issues with that because we tried to get across the danger of, you don't know who's talking to you. They could be you know, portraying themselves as X and they could be Y. And the kids stopped doing it, but I got a little bit curious and I made a connection with someone, but I have no recollection about how that started. I started chatting with someone and she was from a little town in Maine and I found it kind of nice to make a friend. I think it was a time when I needed a friend and I found it nice. It started becoming a lot more than that and we started talking more often and I found myself talking at times when I knew it was not right because I had to make an excuse and kind of hide out. There was really no conversation about it becoming any more than that. I just literally started as she needed a friend and she was a person in a little town and didn't have much of a life outside of her work and family. And we talked more and more and I started feeling very connected. I think at that time, it was a time when there were a lot of issues in my marriage and I was really lonely. I think I felt not lonely talking to her, even though obviously in hindsight, I could have been talking to this robo-machine talking back to me. The whole weird thing about chat is that you assume there's a person on the other end. I mean, I know there was, but anyway, I think the connection was that I found someone who I could bitch or moan to, who I could confide in, and she could do the same with me, and because I guess it's what you would call a friendship. But a friendship with another woman that you don't know when you find yourself at 11.30 at night when your wife's already gone to sleep is not really a friend. And it's easy to say that now as we talk, but then it was alluring. It was getting addictive. I can admit that to myself. I almost needed that fix to talk to her for whatever reason. It never did become sexual on the chats, not that I remember. I didn't remember, I don't think we did any dirty talking on chat. It wasn't like we were having phone sex or chat sex. I think it was just becoming a friendship where it sucked up more and more of my time and it was no problem for me to go and chat with her when I should have been in the other room. I remember times when something was going on at work and I had to get on the chat and talk to her. 
there was some point where she'd been talking about moving down here. And a lot of it was, you know, she'd always said that that was something she wanted to do. And she'd said that her life was a zero. I think at that time she was 30 some odd year old woman who'd had no male relationships at all. And I don't even know if she was sexually active. I really think she went to family and friends and worked and she talked about moving here. And there was a point when she said she was coming down and she didn't say we should get together. She didn't say anything like that. And I know she was coming and I picked a fight with my wife. And I don't know which came first. I don't know if I picked the fight and I said I should go meet her or if something in my head was saying, you know, you should go meet her so you should pick a fight. I don't know. Her name was M, by the way. Anyway, there was no chatting with her. She knew nothing about it. Oh, his wife. There was no chatting with her. She knew nothing about it. The night that everything happened, I knew that she was flying into my local airport and I created a fight or a fight happened and I went to the airport and I met her at the gate. So I just want to point out two things in this story, and this happened over and over again. There's like this, well, first of all, it illustrates the internet and its role, right? So he's got a whole narrative about how he's chatting, and it's a friend, and it's chatting. And he even kind of, he, he talks about the dangers of his son not knowing who's on the other end, and then he gets roped into a different kind of danger, like an unconscious process. But then he's sort of conscious that he picked a fight, which implies intentional decision-making, and then he kind of obscures that in the next sentence. So he's, there's a conflict there. He both knows he's doing it and he's hiding that he's doing it, and he's making it sound passive. In the end, this particular example really illustrates what's missing in his, in his life. It's that conversation, that intimate conversation. And at the very end of this really lengthy text, he starts to talk about um, his marriage and how bad it is and how, how hard it is to talk to his wife. And that's actually the more interesting nugget to focus on. It's not the affair and an apology or whatever, although that might be interesting. It's the, it's the lack of conversation. So I'm going to continue for a second. Um, he describes the affair in the hotel. He meets her and he goes to a hotel. They have an affair. They have sex. And the problem wasn't that it was just then, you know. This went on for years. It wasn't a one-night stand. Yeah, years. It's not easy to talk about. And what's difficult about this whole thing is you find yourself lurking and sneaking and lying and doing things that you would never tolerate um, in anyone else. And I would also say to you that anyone who says they wouldn't do it again is a liar. If you ask me if I would ever do it again, I would say hell no because of the pain it created for a lot of people. Still now, it changes everything. Yeah, I absolutely think it could happen again. It hasn't presented itself but I think it's probably not all that hard nowadays to have a physical affair. Whether you pay for it or it's emotional, I don't think it's all that hard. You can go online, find a sex friend, you know, nowadays. I haven't done that, but I know you can. It's just the world we live in. I don't know, it's like for an alcoholic. I hate to say they're the same, but I've had this discussion with my wife and other people. But how does an alcoholic live with the fact that they're an alcoholic and could stop being sober five minutes from now? I draw this parallel. I've been seeing a counselor ever since this started happening. I still go see her. It's been that long. It's helpful in the sense that when things are adding up and it feels like I'm on the verge, talking to her helps me get off, let off enough steam so that I don't act out. Can she fix me? No. I need to grow and deal with some things in my life that I've been saying to myself forever because it's easier to just not do, not, not to. Is it an addiction? For me it was. I needed the fix. And then it got to the point that I didn't want to hurt her feelings and it exacerbated it. And that's even worse because there's no happy ending. So my wife found out and it literally got to a point one day when I was at the other woman's house and I either needed to come and get my stuff and move into her house or come home and break it off with her and whatever that meant. And I did the latter. And in hindsight, my counselor asked me if I was in love with the other woman, and I don't really think I was. I think I was in love with someone loving me or adoring me. It's a really complicated question because it doesn't mean that you don't love the person. In love and love are completely different things. I'm sure you know. I loved my wife during the whole thing, but it's a hell of a way to love someone, to be screwing someone else. I can talk flippantly about it now, but then it didn't, I didn't really see that I was hurting her. She was at home and she was my wife and I got emotional and probably physical needs met with another person. Our marriage was screwed up and our marriage is still screwed up. I think everybody's marriages are screwed up. He goes on to describe his wife. I'm going to let her be because it's pretty negative actually. Poor thing. But she really is difficult to talk to. She basically silences every meaningful conversation with like, yeah, whatever. You don't like it? Get out. You know, she's kind of a, a pragmatic person. Um, 
And there's a third one that I want to just share with you because it's a little bit different. It's a woman who's cheating. And it's, I found it really hard, despite the fact that I know from my clinical experience that women have affairs, women are less likely to come forward in research. So it was really difficult to recruit women. And it's also um, interesting because this person identifies as bi and poly. So it gets a little bit more complicated than these typical marriage monogamy scenarios. I'm going to try to not be metacognitive about this, like totally overly analytical. I guess the first experience I had uh, with what I would be considered an affair would be, I guess I'd been married a couple of years, like maybe two years. And then the two upstairs neighbor boys who were just a few years younger than me at the time came down. And you know, we were hanging out and partying a little bit. And one of the guys ended up kissing me. And you know, I kind of, I was really taken aback by it, right? I didn't think anything of it, but I just remember thinking how hot it was and how turned on I got. And we would have probably gone a little farther. His hand was like down my pants and up my shirt and a little bit, and his friend interrupted us in the bedroom and we stopped. And um, a couple of days later, he ended up coming downstairs and we ended up having sex. I love this ended up part, like ended up. <laughs> That's that, we call that passive intentionality. But anyway, it's, it's fascinating. In every, in every single narrative, at the moment of like a clear breach, there's this passivity, it's fascinating. It's just fascinating. And I think for me, the like the beginning of an affair, I guess like I didn't really consider it an affair until I started seeing this guy on a regular basis. And um, so I think, you know, it was my first experience with, you know, stepping outside of my marriage with my husband. And you know, I'd already been really unhappy. Like our sex life was non-existent. And so for me, it was like that initial, like when he first kissed me, you know, and kind of felt me up, it was like this initial, wow, this is really exciting. And I didn't really consider it cheating, you know? I just kind of just, dude, because I was like, wow. Like truly the intention was on his part. Like not mine, it was truly on his part. And he really surprised me out of the blue with kissing me, right? But when I had him come down those a couple of days later and actually intended on having sex with him and you know, got showered and dressed and lingerie and had condoms, to me, that was sort of when at least the affair in my mind began because then the intent in my mind was to connect with someone other than my husband. And by connect, I mean connect sexually. This was my first taste at being very agentic in my sexuality and saying, I wanted this. You know, although he, he hit on me initially, I wanted this. I ended up, let me back up a minute. My husband and I at the time, just a very quick background. My husband and I were students and he was from Brazil and I married him and I'd just turned 21. I'd been with girls before and one guy. So this whole heterosexual marriage thing was very, um, like very exciting and something that I was excited to try, but didn't really have a template and wasn't sure it could work. Um, I didn't know how to be in that kind of relationship, but I've always been such a sexual person, and I kind of have the tendency to separate sex and love. And so for me, those first two years of marriage where things were rough for a variety of reasons, you know, new marriage, you know, language stuff, you know, we were living in a, like we were just starting out, you know? And I kind of, like I knew that sex was so important, and I couldn't kind of figure out what was going on because I had to know in my heart that it wasn't me. I was like, dude, because I hadn't had issues before, you know? with the few partners that I had in my life. And so he and I struggled those first couple of years. I was like, it's gonna get better. I was in grad school and I thought we just needed kind of like to iron things out and it'll get better. So when the upstairs neighbor hit on me, it just kind of validated those feelings that I had, that I was desirable and that I was worthy of sexual attention and I was worthy of a man's affection and desire. And that's why it took me off guard, got me so off guard. But that's why a couple of days afterwards, when I started thinking about it, I was like, you know, I was just like, fuck it, man. I'm so sick of waiting around for this to happen. And this just feels good. Like for once, this just feels good. I just felt really, really good. And so that's why I said, you know, I don't think about this as being a one-time thing or a multiple-time thing. I just thought about being like, come down and let's make this happen. And I think that now looking back, reflecting all those years ago, I have to admit that I was excited. I was excited somebody showed me interest and that he was attractive. And um, I think that as I continued to sort of see him, I realized how much I missed sex and how much I missed intimacy and physical connection and how I wanted that in my life. And of course I wanted it for my husband. And I thought that in the meantime, I should just do my own thing. And when we re reconnect, however we reconnect, then we can kind of, that can kind of go by the wayside. So this is a fascinating scenario. She's really articulating also that passivity. And she's kind of suggesting some lack of clarity on you know monogamy and heterosexuality and like that's all present there too 
And so it, it's clear how this unfolds and why it unfolds as it unfolds. So I'm going to leave that there for a second because I want to get to the model and make sure that we have time. Um, hopefully you're seeing some patterns and trends and so my analysis won't seem so um, overly generalized. So what I did with all these stories, and there's lots of them taken over time, is I looked at the general structure. What happens to people as they, as they kind of cheat? There's eight different things that seem to happen in, in common among all the stories. One is a dissatisfaction and hopelessness in the primary relationship. Nobody had to describe their primary relationship. I actually didn't ask them about that, but they all did describe it. So that struck me as interesting. They all described a value of novelty or passion in romantic and sexual relationships. They weren't looking for security. They weren't interested in intellectual communication. Well, in some cases they were, but they were looking for stimulation. They were looking for passion and excitement. There was a sense of entitlement or a deserving of sexual satisfaction in intimate connections. The partner and the self were viewed as fixed characters, like something can't change. And that's the most important intervention point for therapists in general. If you want to have a happy relationship with anyone, you have to view yourself and the other as changeable. Um, there's a lot of science. There's a really excellent um, set of scientists who are thinking about executive function and the ways in which people can change and kind of all the possibilities. If you start finding yourself closing down and thinking, oh, I'm just this way, nothing can change, your thinking is pretty um, problematic. There's a lack of interest and curiosity in the primary partner. If you're not curious about another person and you don't ask questions and you don't focus on them, you don't care, not a lot of intimacy can be built and sex usually sucks at that point. The affair is not recognized as an affair until after it begins or there's some kind of passive fog that gets glossed over in that moment and it's only much later that people come to understand it. There's an experience of desire that comes over people. It happens to them as they report it. They're not kind of aware of all the things that they do that are agentic and, and intentional. And they don't really do a good job of thinking about divorce or opening up the relationship as a structural solution in the midst of an affair. Think about it. An affair wouldn't be an affair if you were actually opening up or considering divorce beforehand. So what does that mean? What does it mean that this is the pattern? It means that people don't generally know how to go about being aware of what is happening as it's happening. And they don't know how to redefine solving these basic dilemmas that are beneath the infidelities. They don't know how to engage in a way that would reanimate their partner and enliven things and stimulate curiosity. They also don't know how to challenge their thinking or to persist in difficult conversations. And they tend to not see how limited their views are of relationships. So it's as if once they get into this mindset, it just all those beliefs reinforce one another. And then an affair is just a matter of time. Often the most perplexing question to those experiencing infidelity is why this happened. Even to those who are cheating, they're doing it and they're wondering why did this happen? Recall that they generally report the beginning of an affair occurring in an innocuous, somewhat unconscious way. Most people either don't talk with their partner about the dilemma or they don't talk about it or they talk about it once or twice and then determine that their partner's not receptive. I don't know about you, but in most relationships that are important, mine included, there are, very, there are a few issues that present themselves over and over again that you have to have a lot of conversations about to make any headway. Usually the conversation has a pattern, and usually the pattern is frustrating. You have to actually change how you have the conversation before anything else changes. So you run headlong into the brick wall about four or five times, and if you have a little stamina, you decide to make some changes. And then the choices that are there change. You have a different choice set. This is because people aren't aware of their inner experiences. They don't have language to adequately express and accept what's occurring. The affair begins and takes on a life of its own and might provide relief to the fundamental dilemma temporarily, but it also sets in motion an undeniable conflict for most people. The one who cheated often did so because they were unable or unwilling to put words to the fundamental dilemma they're experiencing and resolve it directly. But the conflict they experience when they're discovered forces the dilemma to, to the surface to be named in a distorted way. Often they're still unwilling or unable to put words to the dilemma, even after the affair is discovered or during couples counseling. They experience guilt and shame for how they've tried to resolve the dilemma, and witnessing their partner being upset doesn't help them access their words and feelings. It doesn't inspire an authentic apology, and it usually doesn't provide insight. There's a need to backtrack and uncover and integrate more of what was not addressed directly prior to the affair. Often this requires a set of skills to be strengthened. Individuation, self-esteem work, self-soothing, 
understanding one's inner life and emotions, emotion regulation skills, discussions and learning about sexuality, and communication and empathy skills are often involved. This is a tall order, but it's often motivated by the pain of the affair. The idea that infidelity is a call to consider our skills and development. These key constituents of the phenomenon give us a roadmap for what is the dilemma and what skills are needed. So I'm going to summarize a couple of cases very, very quickly and talk about the dilemma that's beneath them, because that's actually the more interesting part to me. There's one case of a story of a woman who doesn't want to have sex as much as her partner does because she was assaulted and she has flashbacks. Most clinical cases of this would be considered PTSD cases, and you would send that person into treatment for PTSD. But what's interesting is what happens in the couple as a result. Her partner goes outside the relationship because his desires are too threatening to her. When he desires her, she gets triggered. So it's scary to her, and he wants to protect her. So actually his affair is a way of stabilizing, the, not triggering the PTSD. It's an act of kindness, but it sort of is a warped, distorted way. Because there's no way for him to yet have a conversation about, this is painful for me too. We often have these unwritten rules. Whoever's in the most visible pain gets to be in the most visible pain. And the other person who's in pain has to sort of stuff it, right, and tolerate it and like support the one who's like sobbing and had the horrifying experience. But what's unfortunate about that is if we're always sort of catering to the person who has the worst experience, there's a whole lot of other experiences that aren't getting tended to. And in reality, my pain and your pain, we can't really measure it. I mean, that's silly to me. Yes, a person who's experiencing PTSD is in crisis. It's acute. That's clear. This other person was also in pain. There's a story of a family with a special needs kid who are too overwhelmed with the daily tasks of life based on this kid's special needs to feel desire or sex with one another. They oftentimes fall into bed like exhausted after doing everything and all the you know learning specialists and so on. They're both seeking distraction and comfort outside the relationship. They're both having an affair. And later reconnect when their special needs child leaves home. So what's interesting about that dynamic is they actually are kind of at parity because they've both done the same thing and it's been secret from one another. And so they're not as angry at each other. But the reconnect is really hard because it's been years of them being outside of the relationship. You're kind of with someone that you barely know. There's the story of a trans man who watches porn featuring heterosexual sex after his transition instead of having sex with his lesbian-identified wife because he wants to avoid offending her or losing her because she knows the extent to which, if she knows the extent to which he's interested in changing how they, how they have sex to be more phallocentric. This dynamic we're seeing more and more in couples that... Um, that where there's a transition inside of a long-term relationship, suddenly it has all kinds of pivot points and identity questions for the partner. And sometimes that has a sexual or an affair kind of context. <coughs> there's a story of a man who had an affair while his wife refuses sex due to her ongoing uterine cancer treatment, but deep down he fears that she will die, and he's unable to tolerate the thought. So he ha has sex with someone else. He doesn't even want to be physically close to his wife because getting close to her evokes this existential fear of death. There's the story of a woman who has an affair with a colleague because her husband has dementia. She doesn't want to leave him, and she takes care of him completely. She feels really strongly about that promise in death, you know, till death do we part and in sickness and health. But he's too angry and irritable for her to experience tenderness or desire with him, and her colleague provides levity and relief. So in each of these cases, there's sort of the person is trying to solve a problem without rocking the boat, but it ends up being a betrayal. These aren't outright you know, sexual narcissists and psychopaths who are out there trying to fuck their way through everything. These are people trying to solve real human di dilemmas. Of course, there probably are a few very small numbers of cases of the latter. So in the end, I don't offer a message of hope that we can somehow avoid pain in our intimate relationships, and in particular that we can avoid affairs or drive erotic intelligence. I know Esther Perel's written, re recently written a really large book about erotic intelligence. And for some people, that really works, that concept of you know, making your relationship really truly erotic with the dynamic tensions and so on. I'm a little bit of an existentialist. I see pain and suffering as part of being embodied and part of being in, in relationships. I also don't, in the end, see affairs, divorce, or particular sex acts or commitments as positive or negative inherently. There are so many cases of people who come through affairs on the other side, and they delve into really rich material, and they're happier. They almost wish 
they're, they're almost glad that that whole process happened because otherwise they wouldn't have been motivated. There are people who divorce or break up and they're happier later. In the midst of it, it's awful. But during, during that tension, it's, um, you know, at, at the end, it's, it's motivating. What I can offer is the simple idea that we're all trying to navigate relationally in a pre-reflective body subject that has the capacity to become more conscious so that we're able to choose and use the limited time that we're alive for development and healing. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.